John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 to 30, hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. So, he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Humans tend to be fascinated by a certain combination. And that combination is water and light. Water and light together. When there is a fantastic, rainy thunderstorm, we love watching it, don't we? It's pouring down water, and the sky is full of awe-inspiring light. One of the most impressive opening ceremonies and torch lightings of the Olympics was in Sydney, and they had that combination. The athlete, a female athlete, got into a shallow pool of water, and she lit a ring of fire around her, which then ascended into the air and ascended up a uh, diagonal plane and lit the flame. And it was a, an awe-inspiring combination of fire and water together. If you've ever been to Las Vegas, uh, you probably made part of your itinerary to see the Bellagio Fountain Water Show. What is it? It's that combination of water and light together. And there's something much more common around here with all of our swimming pools. There's a state law that says you're not supposed to swim after dusk, but the swimming pools around us are illuminated at light, at night. And I find them to be stunning. 
even though we're not so supposed to be in them, after dusk. Water and light. And it, it occurs to me that perhaps there's something primeval about this appeal of water and light to humans. Because these are two elements that are absolutely necessary for what? Life. We cannot have life. We cannot live without water and light. And what we have here is after the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we saw last week. That Jesus was in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, what did Jesus say? Jesus offered what? Living water to the people who were there. A later writer wrote this about the water-drawing ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. He said this, This, um, he said, He who has not seen the water-drawing ceremony has not seen rejoicing in his life. You don't know what rejoicing is, he said, unless you've seen the water-drawing ceremony. What was the water-drawing ceremony? We mentioned it last week where the priest would draw water and pour out water. But I didn't mention that when he was doing that, in the court of the women, which is probably where Jesus was preaching, it mentions that he's in the, the treasury in verse 20, which was, as we know, in the court of women. In that court of women, which was accessible to all, there was also a torch lighting, not one torch, but four enormous torches. So what did we have there? We had the combination of fire, water, and uh, the later writer says, you've never seen rejoicing. You've never been to a party unless you have seen this ceremony. But now in chapter 8, in the middle of chapter 8, the party's over. The feast is done. The water's been poured out. Jesus has offered living water And what has happened to those torches? Those torches have been extinguished. And after the extinguishing of those torches in that festival of water and light, Jesus stands and He says, I am the light of the world. This is the second time that Jesus has used the expression, I am, with a predicate. He uses I am, sometimes with a predicate. He's already said in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. And this is the second time. Now he says, I am the light of the world. And sometimes, as we'll see, he uses this expression absolutely. That is to say, without a predicate. He simply says, I am. And he says that twice uh, in this section and then once more later in this chapter. So he begins... And actually, he begins as this gospel begins. If you go back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John and verse 4, we find that this gospel begins with light. Uh, It says, In Him, that is, in this Word who became flesh, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it starts with light, and then Jesus declares that He is the light of the world. In addition to the pillar of fire that went around in the wilderness in the Old Testament, there was a time when the people of God were in the Old Testament for 40 years, and they were guided at night by a pillar of fire. But in addition to that, there are many references to light in the Old Testament. But the one that is closest to this one, Jesus' reference, comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 49, verse 6. And it's about the servant of God. And God says to His servant, 
Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's what the servant of the Lord would do. And then Jesus arrives and He says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the nations. Now, um, Jesus explained that those who follow Him, look at the verb here, verse 12. Jesus said, I'm light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So those who follow Jesus. Now we have seen, and we will see even more clearly next week, that there were those who mouthed belief in Jesus. And then there was a subgroup of those who actually followed Him. And here he says, those who follow me, their lives will not be characterized by stumbling around in the darkness, but rather they will walk in light and they will have the light of life. Now, we would think that this would be a a fantastic jumping off point for an amazing discussion with the religious leaders who were so trained, so trained in these metaphors of light and in the references from the Old Testament. But instead of that they raise a procedural objection. A procedural objection. In verse 12, So the Pharisee said to him, "Your, Your procedure's wrong. What you're doing is not right. Because you are talking about yourself. You are bearing witness about yourself. And so, your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not valid. Now, we understand that, right? If somebody says something about himself or herself... We say, okay, uh, maybe so, but we want to check it out with other people who know, particularly in a a court of law. You can't just go into a court of law and say, uh, I'm innocent, and just take my word for it. Uh, You need what? Witnesses that can say, yes, he's innocent. He was with me when that happened. And so he was not involved. He's innocent. And and so they're they're raising a procedural objection. And actually, if you go back to chapter 5... Jesus admitted that. Jesus admitted that if He were the absolutely only one who was saying these things about Him, that that would be an invalid witness. But here He says something different in His response. And by the way, it seems kind of a shame, doesn't it? Jesus has just made this momentous declaration about being the light of the world, and now the conversation gets sidetracked with a procedural objection. And we don't get back to the light of the world until chapter 9 when there was a man who was born blind and had never seen light in all of his life. So we'll get back to the light. But now Jesus deals first with this this procedural objection. And he says, it's true that if, if I were the only one saying what I'm saying, then yes, that would be invalid. But there's a difference in my case. Verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And there's been debate. We've heard that throughout this. From where did Jesus come? What's His origin and what's His destiny? What's His origin and what's His destiny? And that's been a point of discussion. He says, you still don't get it. But I know from where I come, I know where I'm going. Now I want you to connect this with this metaphor of light. How does light testify about itself? 
It shines. That's all it has to do. Light doesn't need some other attestation. Light doesn't need some other witness. Light simply shines. And light, as it illuminates, it testifies inherently about itself. We see from where it's coming, and we see what it illuminates. And so Jesus is saying, I'm in a different situation. I know from where I came, and I know where I'm going. I am like that light. I can testify about myself and have a valid and true testimony. Um, However, he said, your procedure, the way you're proceeding, they challenged his procedure, right? And now he turns it around and challenges their procedure. He says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. You judge according to human criteria. I judge no one. Later on, he's going to talk about judging. So some some, uh, scholars look at this and say, this is contradictory. He says, I judge no one. And then he talks about judgment later on. He's saying, I judge no one like you judge. You judge according to the flesh. That's not how I judge. I have different criteria by by which I judge. Then he says, yet even if I do judge, verse 16, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And here he goes into the second argument about his procedure. He says, okay, verse 17, in your law it's written, this is something you recognize, in your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. That is to say, it's valid. It's a valid procedure. And uh, this word, people, is the word men. Uh, So, the testimony of two men is true. And then he gives a contrast here. He says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So, you see what he's doing here? He emphasizes your law, your law, receives the testimony of two what? Men. And I have two witnesses that are more than mere men. So if you accept the testimony of two men, then how much more should you accept my testimony because I testify about myself and I can testify about myself because I know from where I came and I know where I'm going. I can self-testify and the Father testifies about me. So he pulls out greater witnesses, and they are often not very comprehending. Um, and they say to him, which is a reasonable request, they ask him to produce the Father. He said, You said that the Father testifies about you. Show us the Father. Bring forth your witness. Call your witness. And Jesus answered, That's verse 19. Jesus answered, He says, You don't know me, and you don't know my Father. Uh, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. You wouldn't be call, asking me to call this witness because you would already know that he's testifying. And this is says that he spoke in the treasury, which we think was in the women's court, and no one arrested him. Do you remember last week they sent the temple guards to arrest him? They came back empty-handed because they were so impressed with his preaching. And, uh, but he was still under this threat of arrest. But it says here, uh, another time, we've seen this before, why didn't they arrest him? The end of verse 20. What's it say? His hour had not yet come. And we've seen that time and time again. His hour had not yet come. And we've seen that His hour refers to the hour of His crucifixion. And He would not be arrested. He would not be handed over. He would not be beaten. He would not be crucified until it was time for that to happen. So, once again, verse 21, 
he says to them, I'm going away. He told them that in last, uh, last week's section, chapter 7. I'm going away, you will seek me. Now he adds something ominous here. Last week he said, you'll seek me and you won't find me because where I'm going, you can't go. And they said, oh, is he going to go among the diaspora, the scattered Jews, and teach the Greeks? That was their, their, their possible supposition of last week. What's he going to, where is he going to go? But Jesus adds something very ominous here. He says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. That's a terrible sounding sort of expression, isn't it? And it's not, he didn't explain what that is. But we can imagine what he meant by that. You will die in the condition of your sin. You will die under the judgment of your sin. You will die without forgiveness for your sin. And I want you to notice that the first time he says this, he uses the singular. He says, sin, not sins. He says, you will die in your sin. And it looks like what that sin is, is the basic sin of unbelief. He says, if you continue on the way you're going, in unbelief, you will die in that unbelief. I remember, as seminarians, we had in a practical theology class, they would bring in more experienced ministers. And I remember that they brought in a hospital chaplain. And we were young and we were naive and and, uh, we didn't really know how real ministry would go. And so the hospital chaplain was talking about hospital chaplaincy. And and somebody raised his hand and said, "Uh, uh, Chaplain, do you see many deathbed conversions? I'm sure that many people at the end of their lives turn to Jesus and are saved. And they believe at the end of their lives. And he said, no. Very uncommon. What I see is the way people live is also the way they die. And that's what Jesus was saying to them. If you continue living this way, this is how you will die as well. So this is very terrifying here and very ominous. But good news is coming. Because as they go on, now they have another outrageous sort of idea, verse 22. The Jews said, will he kill himself? And the way they asked it is like this. He won't kill himself, will he? They didn't really believe that, but they were just throwing out possible ideas. And he said to them, you're from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. So he's contrasting their criteria with his criteria, their origin with his origin. And he said to them, "Uh, I told you, verse 24, that you would die in your, what's it say now? Sins. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So now he's changed the expression. Now he has said, not only will you die in your sin of unbelief, if there's no change, but you will die also in your sins. And uh, what's the difference between sins and sin? Well, if we ask the question... Um, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? The answer is, we sin because we're sinners. So the sins come from sin. And he says, you'll die in that, that basic principle of sin, unless something radical changes, and you will also die having been 
sinners and accumulated a vast number of sins as well. He says that will happen unless, and here's where the good news comes in, unless you believe. And here he says this is the way out. Unless you repent of that that basic sin of unbelief, then you will die in your sins. But if you repent of that basic sin of unbelief and begin to believe, then you will not die in your sins. And uh, this expression is curious, and it, it is a bit jarring, and it's, it's awkward. And it says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am, and we feel like we need the predicate here, don't we? Unless you believe that I am, what? But the context doesn't really provide a predicate. And so, in the, in the ears of the Jews, what would they have heard? They would have heard this allusion to the divine name. As we saw in Isaiah, where God says that I am. And so, this is at least an indirect reference to the fact that Jesus is God. And that He's claiming to be God in the flesh here. And He's claiming something that we've seen throughout this Gospel and we see throughout the New Testament. He's claiming to be the only way to God. He says, I am God. And I am the only way to the Father. Now, this kind of exclusive claim is very jarring in the West today. It's very jarring because the only absolute that's admitted in the West today is that there are no absolutes, which is a a self-contradictory statement. I remember a friend of mine, without irony, saying, well, one thing I've learned, one thing I've learned in life is that there is no truth. What is that? That's a, a very huge truth statement. That there is no truth. But that's how the West is these days. With its emphasis on relativism, with its emphasis on on pluralism. And so if anybody dares, if anybody dares to make an absolute kind of statement like Jesus frequently does, by saying, I am He, I am God, I am the way to the Father, then, then immediately... In the, the Western courts, that's, that's ruled out of order. That's, that's impossible. And two common objections that we find in our situation are, basically, they, they amount to the same thing, but they're, they're these two. One is, we're not that bad, really, and so we may need some help. I mean, no one's, no one's perfect, right? Uh, and, and we may need some help, we may need a little bit of, of cleaning up along the way, but, but we're not that bad, and so God could not possibly have any big problem with people like us. So that's, that's one objection. The other objection is that if there is a God, and if there is a possibility that we can get to God, then pretty much any way, and here's where the relativism comes in, any, any way is good enough. You just kind of choose your way, And then we've made up this expression, that's true for you, and that's great, that's true for you, it's not true for me. And these two objections are basically the same thing. Basically what we're saying is, our condition is not so so dire, 
that there has to be one radical solution, our condition is such that, well, kind of any old solution that we can come up with it is good enough. Now, the hearers were also offended. We're not the first culture to be offended by this sort of statement because they were offended as well. If you look at verse 20, it says that they wanted to arrest him, but nobody could arrest him because his hour had not yet come. Now, they were offended in some ways for a similar reason that our culture is offended. And that was because they thought they were fine already. And they thought they were fine already because, after all, they were Jews. And we recognized that they were the most privileged people on the planet at the time because they had the Word of God. God had revealed Himself to them, and so they were satisfied that if anybody was okay with God, and if God was okay with anybody, it had to be whom? It had to be them. It had to be they. And so when Jesus came along, a Jew speaking to Jews saying, I will get you to the Father, they're thinking, we don't need help getting to the Father. We're the ones that are already okay. But now as we get to the conclusion here, we see why they and we need a radical intervention as the conversation goes on. In verse 21, Jesus says, I'm going away, you will seek me, you will die in your sin, and so on, and you will die in your sins. There's the basic problem. There's the basic problem. Um, this is not a word that we, we like to use very much, uh, sin. You'll hear people talk about evil. You'll hear people talk about wrong. You'll hear people talk about errors. But, but Jesus doesn't mince any words here. He talks about sin. And what he's saying is, the problem is really grave. The problem is really serious for every single human being. And so the solution has to be a an astounding solution, a, a radical solution that gets to the root of the problem. And he says, I am that solution, and you need to believe in me. But they didn't get it. And they said, who are you? Verse 25. He says, what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you, much to judge, but you sent me as true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then, as we've already picked up, they did not understand. Verse 27, they did not understand that He had been speaking to them about the Father. And here Jesus gets to the solution. So Jesus said to them, verse, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. This is the second time He uses that expression, I am, absolutely. And He says, when you have lifted me up, when you see me lifted up, then you will know that I am. And this is a curious verb here, because this verb, lifted up, usually means to exalt and to glorify. And Jesus says, when, when you have glorified me, when you have raised me, when you have exalted me, then you will know that I am. But we find in the Gospel of John that it's a very curious sort of exaltation. A very curious sort of lifting up. Because it's a lifting up 
on a Roman cross to be crucified as a common criminal. Now, now think about this. Jesus is saying, when you see Me lifted up on a cross, then you will know that I am He. He's saying to them, when you see Me crucified, then you will know that I am God. Now, He's not saying that all of them will immediately understand, but what He's saying is, on the cross... I will reveal myself as who I am. I will reveal myself as God to you. And on the cross, you will be able to see who I am more clearly than you have been able to see heretofore. Why is that? Because what did Jesus do on the cross? He dealt with that basic problem. What's that basic problem? The basic problem is sin and sins. And why did Jesus die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of those who believe in Him? And who is able to take away sin? Only God is able to take away sin. And if on the cross, when He was lifted up, Jesus took away the sins of those who believe in Him, who is He revealing Himself to be? He is revealing Himself to be God. The crucified God who became a man. Now, um, this is the event to which we must look. This is the event to which we must look if we are going to understand Jesus and understand God and understand what He did for us and believe in Him. You see, this is why, this is why when Jesus teaches, He says, I'm the way to God. Because He's the only one who could do this. If sin is as serious as the Bible makes it out to be, if it is as great an obstacle, and if it requires such a radical solution, who is able to do that? Only God Himself. And if Jesus is that God who became one of us, then He is the only way that we can be forgiven for our sins and freed from them and be in that relationship with God. So what do we have here? What do we have here? This is the takeaway. We have two types of dying described in this section. And these are the two types of dying between which we may choose. And this is the good news. They're set before us. Even as in the Old Testament, God would come before His people and say, I set before you. Life and death. Choose today. And these two two types of dying are set before us. And what are they? The first type is dying in our sins if we do not believe. But the second type, and hear this, this is the offer, this is the call, this is the invitation to all who would hear. The second type is believing in Jesus as the one who died for our sins. So there you have it. Dying in your sins or believing in Jesus as the only one who could die for your sins. So, believe and live. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for these words of life. We thank You that they came 
in an astounding way through the death of Your Son, the Savior of all who believe. And Lord, I pray that You would give us the grace to believe, the courage to believe in a a culture that tells us it's foolish or even arrogant. But the boast is not in ourselves, Lord. The boast is in Jesus, the only one who could take away sins, the God-man who died for us. And I pray, O God, that we would not be obstinate in our unbelief, but rather that we would believe that He is who He says He is, and that He did what we needed done so that we might have life and walk in light. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.